Whispers in the Trees is a dark podcast currently focusing on the Great White North, surrounding all of our grisly truths from the kindest place on earth to our head-scratching unknowns hidden beneath the snow. My name is Mads, and join me today on a deep dive into the crimes of Mark Twitchell. Today's case will include murder, violence, dismemberment, and strong language. Viewer discretion is advised. If you want to help me continue this passion in bringing the dark secrets to light, please consider helping me out at buymeacoffee.com slash whisperspodcast. Now, join me around the campfire. These are my whispers in the trees. Mark Andrew Twitchell was born on July 4th, 1979 in Edmonton, Alberta. There's not a lot known about his parents, his upbringing, and family life. It's been kept under lock and key, and I have to say I kind of get why. If my kid was doing the things that this guy does, I have to say I wouldn't really want to be involved myself. But that's just me. I can't say I blame his parents, and to each their own, I can't blame them. They weren't involved leave them alone leave his family alone they aren't involved that's all i'm gonna say on that mark was a massive star wars fan and went to school to attend courses in tv and radio he was known to be a liar even calling himself a pathological liar to the authorities later on when questioned later on classmate and ex-friend of mark's from college would report that when working with him Mark wouldn't do his fair share of the college assignments that they were supposed to be working on, and when he was asked about why he wasn't doing his share, he would just lie and make up excuses and all of these kinds of things. I'm sure you guys know the type, either from high school or college. The lazy type who doesn't want to do his work but wants to pass the class, you know the ones. Other than this, he was said to be a solid guy, and because he was other than a liar, a decent okay guy by the sounds of things, he had a core group of friends that followed him from college. Drew would also talk about how when Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, for those who don't know, uh, this is, I guess, when I come clean. I'm not one of a Star Wars fans, but that's not a big thing here. Not gonna dwell on that. <laughs> When The Phantom Menace premiered in Canada, he tried to use the long line uh, in front of the theater as a charity kind of event. He called this Standathon, and he would go to the people in the lineup and he would ask for money to be donated to the Children's Wish Foundation of Canada. Pretty decent idea, and Mark wanted to get involved in this. Of course he did. He brought artwork to Drew, and he claimed that the cast of the film had drawn these pieces of art and they wanted it to be auctioned off at Standathon. Awesome, great. These pieces of art were auctioned off and then later proven to be forgeries. When confronted about this, obviously Mark never took responsibility. Despite all this, he graduated college and he moved to the States for a few years. He was married twice. With his second wife, he had a daughter and they moved back to Canada in 2008. I'm not gonna be talking much about his wife or his daughter. Leave them alone. They're not involved. Just leave them alone. I'm only bringing them up because I want you to know about his life before 
he fucked it up. Leave them alone. He was working on a Star Wars film when he came back to Canada. It was a fan film. I didn't know you could really do this. I thought there was copyright things involved. But it was 2008. Who am I? I don't know. This film was called Star Wars Secrets of the Rebellion. He was also working for various odd jobs, just trying to get a more steady income because obviously filmmaking when you're first starting out, not the most reliable source, to be honest. He also had a hobby making costumes of his favorite characters. His favorite piece, his so-called masterpiece, was a recreation of Bumblebee from Transformers. I've seen pictures, if you're watching my YouTube, it's actually really good. It's flashing on the screen here. Um, you can hate the artist and love the art. What he did here is really impressive. It won a costume contest that was hosted by a Edmonton radio station called The Bear in 2007. The costume contest called Halloween, Halloween Howler, sorry. So he had talent. He was working on things that if he didn't choose to fuck up his life, he probably would have been fine. But then in 2008, he discovered Dexter. You know the one. I'm sure you've seen it. It was a massive TV show. It was a TV drama inspired by a book series surrounding a forensic analyst by day and a serial killer by night. This was Mark's new obsession. He wrote a script and produced a short film called House of Cards. No guys, not that House of Cards. It's 2008. Wasn't even invented. Anyway, eight minutes long and it was inspired by his brand new idol. His fan film would surround a serial killer of his own making that would lure men in through dating websites to kill and dismember them. Wow, creative. He had an amount of talent, I'm not gonna lie, that he was using with his costume designs and screenplay writing and screen work. But he went down a really dark path. He didn't feel he was getting the recognition he deserved and his films weren't really going anywhere and he was falling deeper and deeper and deeper into this world of Dexter. He wanted to be Dexter Morgan. He jumped onto a Canadian website, Plenty of Fish, and made a profile. Obviously this is a dating website. If we were thinking of the foreshadowing from before. He used a fake photo and the name Sheena, and his plan was beginning. He quickly found someone named Giles Tetralt and lured him to a rented garage. The man entered the garage and while he was expecting to see beautiful Sheena, he was met with Mark in a hockey mask with a stun baton. Awesome. A struggle entailed. Mark smacked Giles with a stun baton, knocking him to the floor, and pointed a gun at him. This stopped Giles in his tracks, and Mark told him to drop to the floor. He obeyed his captor, who began to place duct tape around his eyes and his head. This triggered Giles's survival instinct. He knocked Mark back, grabbing the gun, and realized the gun wasn't even real. He ran out the door and stumbled in the gravel. I can imagine he'd stumbled because he'd just been hit with a stun baton and then had to run through gravel. I'm not a coordinated person. 
I always stumble and gravel. I don't blame him. But it sucks because Mark used this to his advantage, grabbing Giles' legs and pulling him into the garage. Giles fought Mark off and ran quickly to a neighbor that he saw that was out walking their dog. He begged for help, but Mark came over to this group and explained that he was a friend of Giles. He'd just been playing a practical joke on the frightened man. Witnesses said it looked like he was about to take off his mask, but changed his mind and then walked very calmly back into the garage. In one news article I found, um, it said that the couple chose not to help Giles because they believed he was part of a mugging scheme. Other people that I've heard talking about this don't really seem to understand where this thought process has come from, so I'm going to try and give some insight on this because this has happened in my area as well as in cities around me and even in the provinces around me. It's not an uncommon thing in Canada, so maybe it's just an uncommon thing in the States or in other countries, but anyway. Around here, I've heard of people making themselves look very roughed up, like fucking up their hair, tearing their clothes. Some people I've heard of even like slashing themselves and wounding themselves a little bit. And then they will run up to a door and look like they're in a panic and just pound on the door screaming for help because they're in quote unquote trouble. And then someone will be out to the side of the door or in the shadows if this isn't someone who's at their home and they'll be hiding for when this person, the target, will move to help the supposed victim of whatever they're pretending to be a victim of. And while they're trying to help, the person will come out of the shadows or come out of hiding and attack them and mug them. It happens, it's... but it doesn't seem to be a very common thing, I guess? I don't know. But I figured I should probably throw some insight on this one because not a lot of people talk about it. So now Mark is in his garage. He decides to leave Giles alone. Giles is in the street. He's alone, helpless. So he goes to his car and he just goes home. He checks to see if Sheena's profile is still there and it's deleted. It's gone. He didn't report this to the police because Mark had threatened to find and kill him if he did. I believe that the threats had happened inside the garage during the struggle, but I couldn't find any more details on that. But there was also said to be some very deep embarrassment and shame at being duped the way he had. Please, if you are ever catfished and attacked like this, don't feel this kind of shame. I've never been in this situation, so I can't personally say how I would react, but there's always someone out there to help you. And remember that if you are hurt, going to the authorities can help you and anyone that is a future victim. Fight, wound them, get DNA under your nails and injure them so that you can be traced as a struggle and they can't say that something happened consensually or you were lying, and go to the police. Do what you can. Even if you're not believed, you'll probably feel better about yourself. But I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a doctor. And I'm not you. I can only advocate for what I think is best. 
Do what is best in your situation. Giles would go to the authorities when he saw what would happen to John Atlinger. John, Johnny Atlinger, was the unfortunate victim who did not get away from Mark. Johnny found a profile on the same dating site as Giles. This profile was under the name of Jen and had a different beautiful woman as the photograph. When Johnny arrived at the location so-called Jen had given him on October 10th, 2008, he texted the number and told who we now know as Mark that he was there. Mark told him to come on in, he was waiting inside, and Johnny did so. I would imagine he was probably excited. It's a first date and this is supposed to be a beautiful woman and he's supposed to go inside. Who wouldn't be excited at that? He goes on in and instead of being met with Jen, he's met with Mark's kill room. It was set up the exact same way it had been set up for Mark's film, House of Cards. There was a metal table in the center of the room with plastic covering it and plastic covering the entirety of the room, the walls, the floor, the ceiling, everything. If you've seen Dexter, you would know without me pointing it out that it is idle is where he got the idea of evidence disposal from. Now, if you haven't seen the show, now you know. While poor Johnny was trying to figure out what he just walked into, Mark came up behind him and blindsided him. In one hand, he held a butcher knife. In the other, he had a pipe. He slammed the pipe into Johnny's forehead and knocked him to the floor before killing him with the butcher knife. Mark then placed Johnny's body on the metal table and dismembered it. He tried to burn the remains to dispose of them, but he didn't realize how long this would take or how hot the fire would actually need to be to complete this task. Modern cremations are done in retorts, which are large furnaces, and they last three to four hours. This is only this fast because the retorts are kept at a consistent 760 to 980 degrees Celsius or 1400 to 1800 degrees Fahrenheit. Without a retort, this process can take days. I'm not joking, days. Mark got frustrated with how long this process was taking and he ended up just taking the dismembered remains and dumping them in a storm sewer a little ways from his Edmonton home. After the remains were thrown down the sewer, he went inside and sent emails to Johnny's friends claiming he would be joining a woman he had met for a long vacation in Costa Rica. He also emailed Johnny's workplace to resign for similar reasonings. When Johnny's friends received these emails and Johnny hadn't returned home from his date, their suspicions just continued to grow. They broke into Johnny's house and dread dropped into the pits of their stomachs as they found his passport. How can you go to Costa Rica without your passport? You can't. Police were notified on Halloween 2008. Johnny had given his friends the address of his date as a safety precaution. I'm going to cut in here and say that while this case may have happened in 2008, please, 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 please follow this kind of safety precaution even today. Men and women alike go missing daily and internet dating sites are one of the most perfect lures. Anytime you meet someone online, meet somewhere public first, tell everyone you know who and where you're meeting, share your location with someone trustworthy on your phone, and trust your gut. Instincts are a wonderful thing trust them. 
to continue with the case away from my sidetracks, because as I'm sure you guys have noticed, I'm great at sidetracking. Johnny's friends handed the address to the police and authorities immediately went to the garage. The landlord handed over Mark's name and he was brought in for questioning. Of course, Mark denied everything, but that did not stop the authorities from searching the location. Inside, they found a BB gun, blood evidence with luminol all over the garage floor. Luminol, as I'm sure most of you know, but if you don't know, it's a chemical substance that authorities will use to find bodily fluid, typically blood evidence. It's sprayed onto somewhere that with the naked eye you can't really see the bodily fluid, most likely because it's been cleaned or something like that. Maybe it's rained and it's on the grass. Sometimes it works in the rain and the grass, but that's kind of iffy. Don't quote that because it's very iffy on that one. But with things like a cleaned garage floor, it works great. They spray it down and the chemical will connect to the protein specific to the bodily fluid and then it will start glowing blue. So with the luminol, they found this blood evidence on the floor of the garage, as well as in Mark's car. They found a hockey mask with blood splatter on it that was actually visible to the naked eye. They found the pipe that was used on Johnny still having blood splatter on it clearly. Three weeks later, detectives actually later testified that the pipe had been drenched and soaked in blood. So that shows how little care Mark gave in covering up what he had done or how overconfident he was in not getting caught. They also found a sticky note with a reminder to clean up the quote-unquote kill room and to have sex with a woman who was not his wife. Why? Why? Why would you write that on a sticky note and keep it in where, as far as I have found, they found it in the sun visor of his driver's side of his car. All I'm gonna say is dumbass. All I'm gonna say, even though I just said all I was gonna say is dumbass, uh, that's not where I'm gonna stop. If you have to write down your crimes, even though that's a terrible idea, if you truly feel the need to write it down, don't use such obvious wording like kill room don't be so stupid. They also found his stun baton. His In the trunk of his car, they found his kill kit, which was really just a hunting and game kit, which was for skinning uh, animals. They also found Johnny's car keys in the garage. I also found photos of police finding a bunch of black garbage bags, but there really wasn't a lot on this. So I'm assuming don't quote me on this, it's an assumption because not a lot was found on it, that it was probably used with Giles and not um, Johnny because I couldn't find anything about blood evidence on it or anything like that. I also believe that it was said that with Johnny he had used tarps and not black garbage bags to line the room, so that leads me to believe that it was most likely with Giles. They also seized and searched Mark's laptop and looked at the contents. These contents that they found would make detectives' skin crawl. There was a document titled SK Confessions. So creative. And again, shows his clear dedication to covering up his crimes. 
This document started with an introduction to what seemed like a story, claiming to be based on true events and about what his progression into becoming a serial killer would be. It states that the names would be changed to, quote-unquote, protect the guilty. If you were going to do that, wouldn't you change your own name? Because aren't you the guilty? Wouldn't you want this on not your laptop? Hmm. I don't think that the people you catfished were the guilty ones here. But who am I? A voice on the internet. Giles found his story under the name of Frank, and as I personally read it, since you can find it online, I had to kind of cringe, to be honest. Mark sees himself as this incredible specimen of a man and thinks of himself as this badass who is incredibly desirable. You can see this narcissistic streak through quotes like, I had a distinct advantage. I was taller and outclassed him in tenacity and strength. This was also my environment, and he wasn't expecting to run into a psycho with a mask, only a beautiful woman he hoped to get lucky with. Frank made a few feeble attempts to hit me, aiming one impotent kick at my groin that I easily deflected. There's a way that he writes himself and a way he writes his victims that really shows who he is. He really sees himself as above these people and as better than them, and he seemed to really enjoy the game he was playing in their heads. It also described how he wanted to do this every Friday evening going forward. There was no remorse in this, and while I'm not a doctor or psychologist by any means, I'm just a true crime nut, like I'm sure most of you are, he really strikes me as a narcissistic motherfucker, to be honest. His writings are something else, but yeah, that's a whole other thing. He also described burning his victims in a drum, which police would then seize, as well as receipts that he still had from buying this drum. Receipts for the duct tape he used, the cleaning supplies, and the tarps. Clearly showing how well he cleaned up his crime scene, how well he covered up his tracks. I fucking can't with this guy. I really can't. Can you hear the frustration in my voice? This dude was either so narcissistic and overconfident that he really thought he was going to get away with this like the Dexter Morgan or he was so stupid. It might have just been a combination of both. It's very frustrating. The police would also find a burn mark in the grass outside that would match the diameter of the drum. As they continued to read Mark's SK confessions, serial killer confessions, they found a part describing Johnny's murder. And in it, he described picking up the skull. He would make his jaw talk and then Mark would use silly voices and make Johnny's skull talk and laugh while he was doing this, allegedly because it was so ridiculous that he found himself in this situation, couldn't believe he was here, that he just started doing that. Okay, buddy, you do you. 
For 18 months, Mark denied knowing anything about the crimes. He said that he didn't know anything, he'd never heard of these men, and he only lured men to his apartment to scare them, to prank them, and to use the footage he gained from that as a publicity stunt for his new movie. As authorities found more and more evidence, Mark finally admitted to murdering and disposing of Johnny's remains. He pointed out on a Google map to the authorities the storm drain that he had dropped Johnny in. It was only a block and a half short of where the police search had ended. I can't imagine the guilt that the authorities were still feeling when they found out that they were that close to finding poor Johnny. Mark then claimed that while, yes, he had indeed killed Johnny, it had been in self-defense. He claimed that when Johnny had arrived at the garage and was met with the setup of the movie, the prank that Mark said he was doing, Johnny was irritated. He didn't exactly like being catfished. He then claimed that Johnny attacked him and there was a fight and Mark felt he had to kill Johnny in the ensuing struggle. He disposed of the remains in a panic and sure, do you, buddy. Whatever. Even if this story was true, the police looked at him and said, why did you write in the book the way you did? If this guy tried to kill you, why would you write it the way you did? He said that he wrote it that way, dramatizing it and fictionalizing it because it would appeal to more audiences. He said that it was a more interesting story. I am so done with this guy. I can't. I fucking can't. Obviously, the court agreed with me. This did not fly. And on April 12th, 2011, he was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for 25 years. So he is eligible for parole in 2036. His family and friends sided with the prosecution on this for obvious reasons. And since his incarceration, he's joined an online dating site for inmates. I guess his wife and daughter don't mean anything. I guess that... Okay, I'm hoping that that choice is because his wife backed out of this and decided to divorce his ass to protect her daughter, but I am choosing to stay out of that because I want to leave them alone. Thank you for that. He talks to people a lot about his crimes, and he seems like a bit of an attention whore. I'm not gonna lie. He doesn't seem to be disliking his time in prison, and he seems to really be soaking up the attention. I don't know. What can I say? I can't talk for him. That's just my opinion. But he seems to be soaking it up. If you or anyone else are suffering from violence, please reach out for help at your local helplines. You can find your province-specific ones at www.dawncanada.net forward slash issues forward slash crisis dash hotlines forward slash. It's an awesome directory listed by province. All you have to do is scroll, find your home province, and find the hotline that suits your needs. There's something to help all kinds of abuse situations, and there's something to help whatever you need. Again, it's www.dawncanada.net forward slash issues forward slash crisis dash hotlines forward slash. If you or someone you know is suffering from a mental health crisis or need someone to talk to about anything mental health related, please dial 
4566 for the Canadian Suicide Prevention Hotline. They're open 24-7 at 365 a year and are available in both English and French. Again, 833-456-4566. For my American listeners, your hotline is 1-800-273-8255. This one is also available 24-7, 365 a year, and they will also talk to you about anything mental health related that you need. Again, 1-800-273-8255. If you feel it's more severe, please dial 911 or visit your local emergency room. You deserve all of the help that you can possibly get, even the help you don't feel you deserve. And you can find me on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Thank you so much for listening. You guys are amazing. Stay safe out there.